You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we're joined with Ryan Carrier. We're going to go through his background, how he got involved in real estate, his real estate journey, and then we're going to take some more questions from the Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. And I know what you're wondering are we always going to answer questions from the Tax Smart Investors Facebook group? And the answer to that question is no. We're just doing that because we get so many questions. We just want to let everybody know about the value of the Facebook group and why you may want to join. So, with that being said, we're going to take a quick word from Landlord Studio and then we'll be right back with Ryan. If you're a do-it-yourself landlord managing rental properties, Landlord Studio is made for you. The software helps landlords simplify income and expense tracking. With their easy-to-use app, you can digitize receipts, record income and expenses in real time, generate reports, and even manage leases and tenants. Plus, Landlord Studio makes late rental payments and bank visits a problem of the past with secure online rent collection. Get the rent paid directly to your bank account, and you can even automate rent reminder emails and late payment fees. Landlord Studio is also the best way to stay tax compliant. They offer a range of financial reports, including Schedule E and supplier expense reports designed for tax time. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com CPA and use the coupon code REALESTATECPA at checkout to get 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com CPA and use the code REALESTATECPA to get 25% off your plan today. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a brief overview of your background and why you got involved in real estate? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, my name is Ryan Carrier. I'm a CPA here in Minnesota. Yeah, I've worked at other CPA firms doing real estate and tax and things like that. So why why getting into real estate back in probably 2016, 2017, uh, a really good friend of mine introduced me to Bigger Pockets. And uh, as a lot of people have heard those episodes, they end it with, you know, what's a good book recommendation? And so a lot of them were Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I ended up listening to or reading uh, rich dad, poor dad. And that was kind of my, my hook into real estate. And, uh, yeah, kind of from there just ended up buying a single family. And I know we'll get into some of this, but ended up buying a property soon after that. And, uh, that just kind of snowballed my, my experience into real estate. Awesome. Awesome. A lot of people come into real estate through the rich dad, poor dad books. I know that's how I got involved, read the book, went down the rabbit hole, but so, you know, you're, you're CPA and you're an investor, like you just said, what is your current investment strategy? Uh, I'm primarily a buy and hold real estate investor. So I own a mix of single family and multifamily all here in Minnesota. Um, something that's a little more unique to me is pretty much 100% of the properties that I've purchased, except for my primary residence, is with partners. So besides from our primary residence, uh, everything else is either 50 50 with, with someone or you know a third ownership. But apart from that, we also own uh, just a limited partnership interest in an Arizona apartment building that was just kind of a value add strategy that, uh, yeah, ended up investing in with one of my co-partners in, in my other deals. Nice, nice. So would you be able to kind of take us through briefly, like how did you get into your first property? Like what was the story behind that? Yeah, 
So I was living with a, a good friend of mine and we were both renting. And, you know, I was reading these, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, reading other books and was kind of walking through kind of my interest and talking about the books with him. And he was getting interested in it as well. I thought I was going to be leaving Minnesota for my first job after college. And that ended up not working out. So then I was looking for, you know, where am I going to live next? And uh, through just kind of meeting more people and, and talking through this, I ended up starting to look. And then he ended up saying, hey, I want to be, you know, looking with you to buy a property. So he and I basically went through the, you know, approval process for a loan and worked with a realtor. We found a single family in Minneapolis and uh, basically, you know, we did an FHA loan and house hacked. So we, we lived in the basement, uh, split kind of this bigger bedroom and then rented out the top units so that we could not live there for free, but live there for much less. And that kind of, you know, got me into even more just the real estate and that experience and things like that. So house hacking was your first, was your first foray into it. So what does your portfolio look like now? I know you mentioned you own some other, other properties at this point with some partners. What does that look like? Yeah, we own two single family homes, two duplexes and one fourplex. Again, those are with various different partners and the splits are primarily 50, 50. And then we've got obviously our primary residence that thankfully we own hundred percent. And then the one uh, syndication deal in Arizona, that was more of a limited partnership investment. Nice. Nice. So what tips do you have for working with partners? I know you said you had some various partners in these deals and uh, some people have ups and downs working with partners. There's, you know, sometimes people like to go in different directions. Like how's that going for you working with partners? It's probably a lot more difficult than just doing it by yourself in certain ways, because uh, at least for me, similar to like being married, it feels like we're going into this long-term commitment because we're buying something together and we're taking on this huge asset. Um, you know, thankfully we can end a partnership much easier than maybe ending a, a marriage, but it's hard to do all the communication and things up front. But when you do that, it provides so much more clarity, just kind of moving forward and being with people who are like-minded, right? People who are wanting to do a similar thing. They understand the strategy, the benefits with real estate, the investment value, and you know, kind of just the overall trajectory and that good constant communication. Uh, pretty much with all of my partners, I, I try to message them or, you know, <laughs> depending on the partner and how many properties we own together, it could be, you know, weekly or monthly or whatever, just kind of checking in depending on how much we manage. Uh, and how active we need to be. So definitely to highlight that, just communication up front and uh, yeah, just being on the same page, kind of like-minded and, and why are we doing this? Right. So it sounds like you kind of need to have alignment with the partners going into sure. it, that you're on the same page with what the goals of the investment are. I, I imagine, do you discuss exit strategies by any chance, like what your exit strategy is going to be on the front end before you go into business with them? Uh, we definitely should do that more. Uh, we, we have not spent a whole lot of time on that. The, the extent of that has pretty much been, hey, we're buying this to hold until you know we retire. We're basically buying this so that in 30 years from now, it's completely paid off. We have no intention of just you know five years, 10 years. It's like, hey, we're just going to hold this and we're going to manage it and get the cash flow, get the debt pay down, uh, some of the tax benefits, things like that. And we'll just ride this out until we get this great offer or uh, we're tired. We're tired of this property and we're ready to kind of upgrade maybe to a bigger property or something. 
Nice, nice. Makes a lot of sense. Great advice too. Um, when it comes to like, you know, owning properties, everybody has some, or some people at least have some nightmare stories that they talk about or some lessons or mistakes they learned about along the way. So I guess let's start there. Is there any lessons or mistakes that you learned across your real estate investing journey so far that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I think it's finding a good property management company, right? Like, although the property management company is going to do a lot of the day-to-day things, there's still an, an element of, as an owner, that no manager, no matter how great they are, that they are going to care about your property as much as you are going to care about your property. So it's something that I've, I've just learned more and more is that one, I need to have more of an ownership mentality, even though I've kind of outsourced some of the day-to-day management, I still need to take ownership of, Hey, this is failing. We have low vacancy. We have really high repairs. You know, I need to take ownership and say, Hey, I need to do X, Y, and Z so that I can better, you know, have our asset our property perform. Uh, and I just need to take more ownership of that. So that's one thing. The second thing is kind of with that, just treating it more like a business rather than just like buying stock, right? Because buying stock is just so, it can be so passive, right? You buy it, you kind of just let it ride. Maybe that's your whole investment strategy. I think with real estate, depending on the property and kind of what your goals are, you need to act like it's more like a business. You need to treat it more like it's a business. So something recently that I've started doing with some of my business partners is kind of talking through what are kind of our business values and what are our KPIs that we want to be looking at for these you know, businesses, whether it's vacancy or like repairs as a percentage of income, things like that, kind of driving better performance and, and treating it like it's a business. Right, right. We hear that a lot. And I could definitely see, you know, it's basically re- real estate when you're when you're buying properties directly, it's not a pure investment. And uh, it's not something you can kind of set and forget you do have to have some level of involvement and uh, really, like you said, treating it like a business and it's not like a stock. So I think it's what a lot of people sometimes forget about real estate. It's they call it real estate investing. But really, when, when you're buying a rental business, or when you're buying a rental property, you're really buying a business, you know, regardless of the size of the property. And uh, even though it might be passive for tax purposes, as we all know, if you're a listener of the show, it's not always 100% passive, like a stock, like you said. So good tips there. Um, w- what's next for you? Yeah, we're looking at either doing another kind of a LP investment into, you know, another property out of state, like a apartment syndication, maybe in Kentucky or Arizona or somewhere kind of down in the Southern belt there, or we're kind of looking at, do we want to buy a short-term rental? Because, you know, those are obviously very popular with Airbnb and VRBO. And actually I didn't mention this, but one, one half of our duplex is a short-term rental on Airbnb. And uh, it was one that we lived in and basically lived on one side and and have been doing Airbnb on the other. Uh, So we have a little bit of experience with that. So we're kind of looking at, can we buy something in Florida or Texas, maybe Arizona or Tennessee or something like that, or Minnesota, right? Because me and pretty much all my partners live in Minnesota. So we're kind of looking at a short-term rental for the next purchase. Nice, nice. And I know you mentioned you had a syndication as well as you know you have a direct portfolio. What do you like better? And why would you say choose a syndication maybe over a direct acquisition or maybe vice versa? Like, what do you, yeah, what do you like better and why would you pick one or the other? Yeah. I love the passivity of an LP interest. It's very nice to just give some, however much it is, 25, 50,000 to, you know, a syndicator 
that does a good job, has a good track record, understand the investment itself. Maybe it's in a location that you can't get to, uh, or it's an asset class that you can't get to, like a big apartment complex, but you know that those can perform well and that's an asset that you want to hold, but you don't have the skills or the you know team around you to get to that. So it's maybe wanting that asset class and wanting it to be passive. I think that's great. But then with the, the short-term rentals, I think there's a, a lot of upside and appreciation to that too. And I think there's a lot of growth there. And again, like I said, as Airbnb and VRBO and these other kind of short-term rental places, companies continue to grow, there's more opportunities for people like me and a lot of our investor or clients are doing this to be able to just buy those and kind of hold on to them and just get the higher cash flow and have a little more control over it and kind of take 100% of that reward for themselves instead of you know trying to share it with 50 different investors if it's a big syndication or something. That's great advice and great insights. You know, the way I always look at it is kind of like, you know, if you're going to buy direct, it is a business, like you said, uh, and that takes a little bit more of your time. It takes a little bit more of your responsibility and maybe a little bit more worry in some cases to, to do it. But uh, it, it is more about, it's more control. You have more control for when you want to sell the asset. Typically in a syndication, it's going to be like a three to five or three to seven year run, whatever the term the syndicator has, and then they're going to move into it and then they're going to sell it. And you may want to keep an asset, right? So that, it's a kind of like control versus passivity. But I also like what you're saying about kind of, you know, getting into different asset classes. My philosophy has always been, it sounds like it's kind of similar to yours. It's like basically build a portfolio that you own directly, maybe in a market, or maybe you eventually expand out to other markets, but then there's going to be maybe a self-storage asset class, or there's going to be, you know, whatever asset class that you can't get to, because like you said, you might have the skill set of a team. So you go and put some money into a syndicate and you get access to that without having to, you know, go and build a team yourself. Or if you want to get into a different geographic location to diversify a little bit, you go ahead and put some money in there. So great answer. Love it. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And we're going to talk a little bit about tax. We are a, a tax-focused podcast here. So what is your favorite strategy that you use for your own situation, your favorite tax strategy? So this might come as a surprise, but I don't feel like I use a lot of the strategies that we talk about often with clients, to be honest. I think going forward, as we buy more, uh, we haven't bought anything in 2022, but as we go forward, continuing or using more cost segregation studies and the, at the price point that we're buying, it'll probably be like a software study that we'll use. Even if that's passive, that might still be okay, kind of depending on our income situation for the years. And then also one that I've used recently is we had a, a big renovation at one of our properties and the contractor sent me you know, an invoice that was pretty significant. And it was pretty much just one line item. Uh, and it was over that de minimis safe harbor amount. So I actually went back to him and said, hey, can you break this out into a little more detail for me? And basically, once he gave it back to me, I was able to, you know, use the de minimis safe harbor. Everything was under $2,500 and was able to expense all of that rather than, you know, the contrary to that would be capitalizing it. So it just kind of benefited us a little bit. But other than that, it's not like I'm using, you know, reps. Me and my wife both work full-time jobs and we have, you know, half of a short-term rental. But that strategy has mostly been kind of a seven plus like days seven to 30 days has kind of been where we're at right now. But I've talked to with my wife about maybe being a realtor or something like that in the future if we, you know, she stops working or something, but she has not really been, been a huge fan of that. So probably going forward, more, more short-term rentals for us. 
Awesome. Awesome. You know, I think people often overlook, they get, they get too caught up with the reps, the short-term rentals, which are excellent strategies, but they forget about the basics and how powerful the basic strategies can be, or, you know, like the diminutive safe harbor. And that saves people probably thousands of dollars a year. I know I've seen clients save a lot of money using the diminutive safe harbor and the other safe harbors that are available. Now, when you're working with clients, uh, you know, what's your favorite strategy that you particularly like to work with clients on? Yeah, it's kind of twofold. So one, is the short-term rental and cost segregation kind of combining those strategies because so many of our clients are working full-time jobs. Right. Often it's a husband and wife and they're both working full-time and they can't get reps or they're not going to hit reps for years to come. So the next best thing, if they want to generate large non-passive losses is to buy a short-term rental, right? They don't need to do the 750 in more than half their time and then combine that with the cost segregation study. But other than that, I really like the kind of shifting income to kids. I think that's a really powerful tool for investors who have kids. Just, yeah, it's, it's a very tax efficient strategy. And I think, at least for me, and I know talking with certain clients, they get very excited about getting their kids involved in that. One, for a financial literacy aspect. Two, for just kind of real world experience. But three, there's obviously the financial aspect of possibly getting the kids tax-free income and then putting that into a Roth IRA to grow tax-free going forward until they pull it out. So there's a lot of benefit to that strategy too that I like. You know, absolutely. I, I love that strategy too. And I know when I have kids and they're old enough to work, uh, they're definitely going to be doing that. I mean, I think you can never go wrong putting money into a Roth IRA. Um, really at the end of the day, even at an early age, if they want to use it for an early retirement account, all those years of compounding will give them a huge head start. If they use it as a retirement account or they can use it to, you know, a part of it at least to buy their first primary residence. Um, what is some other benefits they could use it to pay for college? They'll have to pay tax on the earnings, but they avoid the penalty. And uh, they could also take out the principal, you know, pretty much at any time. So, you know, if they hit, you know, 18 or whatever, and they, they don't want to go to school, they want to start up a business, maybe they could pull some money out. Uh, you know, tax-free from the Roth. So I, I love that strategy as well. Definitely a good way to, you know, not only save for your children's future, but also teach them the value of hard work. Um, so we do have some questions here from the TaxSmart Investors Facebook group. Uh, for anybody who's listening, if you're not already a member of the TaxSmart Investors Facebook group, you can go to taxsmartinvestors.com slash groups slash taxsmartinvestors and uh, go ahead and join. Also want to let everybody know that uh, I we did hold our Tax Smart Insiders live Q&A this past Wednesday and answer a lot of great questions uh, live with me on a Zoom call. So if you want to have a chance to ask your questions live and you have tax questions you need answers for, head on over to taxsmartinvestors.com and you can become a Tax Smart Insider. It's $59 a month. We do two live Q&As a month. We post premium blogs in there with the same strategies that we work with our private clients on. And there's a lot of good discussions going on in there as well. Our team answers questions in there as well as myself and Brandon. So with, without further ado, we are going to jump into some of these questions we have here today. You know, Ryan, the first one we have, I'll throw this your way, is going to be when a short-term rental is purchased with partners, do the tax benefits apply to all partners? Yeah. So that's not an uncommon question. So First, the, there's always with the short-term rental strategy to make it go from passive to non-passive, it's kind of a two-part test. So first, you can partner with someone and you could invest in a short-term rental, meaning that the average stay per guest for the year, the whole year, is seven days or less. Okay, That's, that's only the first test, though. That makes it a short-term rental, yes, in the eyes of the IRS. But if we take that a step further, which most clients are trying to get to, 
which is to make that a non-passive investment, right? So then it's like, we have to look at, let's just say it's two partners. Both partners need to evaluate if they materially participate in, if they just have one short-term rental, if they materially participate in that one short-term rental, or if they have multiple short-term rentals, if they group in that one with the rest of their short-term rentals, do they materially participate in that group? So it's it's kind of a two-part test. It's not extremely just black and white. Uh, you got to look at both. Is it seven days or less? And do you materially participate? Right, right. If someone out there is, is wondering, hey, so I bought a short-term rental 50-50 with a partner, you know, what would they have to do if, I'll, I'll, let me break this down. So if you invest 50-50 with a partner, right, you're, you're both assuming you split profit and losses 50-50, you're going to get the loss assuming there's a loss, you're going to get your 50%. So both partners technically get the tax benefits, but what do they have to do if they want to make those losses non-passive for each of them? And they don't own any other short-term rentals. Right. We have, there's kind of three main material participation. They won't be able to meet substantially all, right. and they won't be able to meet hundred hours and more than anyone else because they're both trying to hit that. Right. So yeah. they would essentially both need to get the 500 hour kind of safe Harbor test, because if they can both get to the 500 hours, they don't really care about each other's hours or really the contractors or cleaners or whatever, but they both need to hit 500 hours if they both want to say we materially participate in the short-term rental. Awesome. Awesome. There you go. Now everybody knows if you're going to partner up with somebody on a short-term rental, you better have a lot of renovations because there's going to be over a thousand hours of activities between you and your other partner that are going to need to be spent and typically, you know, while there's more activities to be done on a short-term rental than a long-term rental, a thousand hours, probably a bit much for many. All right. So uh, we have another question here. How would you explain capital gains tax to a seller in order to get seller financing? Yeah. So I think that is leaning towards an installment sale in my mind. That's kind of the goal. So if the seller were to just completely sell the property outright, you know, in that first year, kind of like a normal sale and not do seller financing, that's great for them. They can get, you know, all the proceeds in that year, but depending on their income tax situation, that could push them for the capital gains rate from like zero to 15% or 15 to 20%. So they could be paying a fairly high tax rate on that capital gain. But if they're willing to kind of take those proceeds over a certain number of years, maybe five or 10 years or something, then they can basically kind of smooth out those capital gains. And maybe they stay within that zero to 15, let's just say 15 instead of 20. So they could save maybe, you know, 5%. And it just kind of smooths out that tax burden. Uh, ultimately, they probably pay less would be my guess. So that's kind of the benefit to them. Again, they're not probably getting all their proceeds right now. So that's kind of what they're foregoing if they're going to get this tax benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've also seen some people who are in retirement uh, use this strategy as well to kind of make sure their AGI does not hit or their modified adjusted gross income does not hit certain thresholds uh, so that they can qualify for certain types of uh, like social security benefits and things of that nature. So I think we're going to take like one or two more questions here today. This is a good one. Uh, it's an easy one. Uh, where should I report de minimis items on Schedule E? So the Schedule E is pretty much alphabetical, but it'll be just simply on the repairs row. You don't have to have it in other expenses or anything. I would just record it with your repairs row. That's That should be pretty straightforward. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Last question. So if you're thinking of creating a parent company to own real estate assets, 
Would an LLC or an S-Corp tax status be a better fit? I would say use an LLC. Don't use an S-Corp. The LLC very simply just has a lot more flexibility. When we start using S-Corps, there can start to be some hindrances and upon transfers or sales, it just kind of limits us. So use an LLC to keep things flexible and just, yeah, keep yourself from getting into a complex situation. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. You, you generally speaking, just for everybody out there who's listening, you want to avoid using an S corporation for rental real estate whenever possible, because it becomes a nightmare to take it out because it's going to be recorded in most cases as a sale at fair market value, even if you're just trying to transfer it to yourself. And, you know, I've worked with a number of clients who've faced this situation and we searched up and down uh, the tax code, talked to different attorneys, talked to different CPAs, and just to find out what we knew from the beginning, that there's really not really a good way to avoid this. So the best way to avoid this situation from happening is by not putting rental activities into an S corporation to begin with. So that's just a, a rule of thumb. You're going to either want to use an LLC that's disregarded or tax the partnership. And uh, that's about it. So Ryan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It was great to hear your story. I never heard the story before and uh, glad you were able to you know, handle some of these questions for our tax smart investors out there. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.